So we'll start with, with leadership, and I, I decided to, to take three characters in order to look at different paradigms of leadership. Because it's Pesach, the middle one will be Moshe. The first one will be Avram. Start with the first Jew. And it's very, very important to see in Avram a certain model that is laid down for all of us. And the third one will be Esther, and we'll get some feedback from you also. We're going to start with, with leadership, and we'll start with Avram. And this is, there's a concept we know about physical DNA, genes. That is, we know that our physical body and, and a certain amount of our personality also is a direct result of our DNA and our genes. There's also a concept of spiritual DNA. In other words, when great people do great things, that gets transmitted to the children as well. In a very, very real way. In a very, very real way. And that's why we use the word spiritual DNA because it's a little bit less tangible than physical DNA, but it is a reality. So by looking at Avram and, and Sarah as well, we understand where we come from. So it, it says in the in the Gemara that you can tell a Jew by three characteristics. Baishanim, modest. Gomel chasidim, those who like to do acts of kindness. And rachmanim, ones who have compassion. So you see two of the three are very related. Compassion and gomel chasidim. The fact that the Gemara picks these as, as the markers of, in a sense, how you can tell who is Jewish, for our purposes, is very important. And this really comes from Avram. According to the Gemara, the Midrash, Avram's main trait was chesed. That it said that Avram's and Sarah had a tent that was open on four sides. And that's as open as you can get, right? And we're told that what did, what did they do exactly? Is basically their whole lives they dedicated to teaching the world that there was one God. Very simple mission. And one of the reasons now Jews are called Yehudim, Mordechai HaYehudi in, in Purim, in the Megillah. He's called Mordechai Yehudi. That's the first time it's actually mentioned. What is that? Even the Torah. In the Torah, we're called Ivri. We're called Ivrim, Hebrews, or Bnei Yisrael. Right afterwards, correct. Afterwards, Bnei Yisrael. But originally, we're called Ivrim. So where does this word come from? Ivrim. It's from the root Laavor, which means to pass over, to cross. So why was Avram called Ivri? So some say it's because he crossed the Euphrates River. He was born in Ur. And to get to Israel, he had to cross the Euphrates River. That was, that was a big thing in those days. So he was called Avram Ivri. So that's what we're talking about before. That's an explanation on the level of worlds. On the level of souls, the Midrash says he was called Avram Ivri. 
because you the whole world was on one side and Avram was on the other. This is a unique situation where Avram he was totally unique. The realization and the revelation that he had that there was one God put him and Sarah in a class of their own. So he passed from one side to the other. Noah wasn't monotheistic? Noah? No, not on the level of Avram, no. In fact, Avram was around 50 when Noah died. They actually, there were 10 generations between them, but they actually were alive for, I think, 50 years. But Noah was called a tzaddik, but he did not have the vision, realization, uh, understanding of God as Adam. He didn't proselytize Like he didn't try that. Right. That, that was part of Noah's problem. Actually, the Gemara says that if you meet someone who says that they're Jewish and they're cruel, you should really maybe question if this person is really Jewish. Now, that's how strong this trait of, of kindness and compassion is. So we said that that's what Noah lacked. He might have had a certain understanding of God, but if we're talking about leadership, this is the whole thing that made the difference between Noah and Avram. Noah was told that his whole generation would be wiped out, and not once did he plead for them. Not once did he say to God, could you possibly change your mind? Is there something we can do? Can I do something to make it different? That's what we're told. It's the difference between Noah and Avram and Moshe. We're told that there's a line there. And according to Kabbalah, Moshe is a reincarnation of Noah. And he actually fixes that part of Noah. And Noah didn't sleep for a generation. Avram when he was told that the, the city of Sodom would be wiped out, and they were like as evil a people as the be, he pleaded for them. And he even had a little bit of a chutzpah. He said to God, he said, is the God of righteousness, is it possible that he won't act righteously and kill the righteous with the wicked? As we're told, this is the first prayer that we have mentioned in the Torah, that someone is pleading with God, call it praying. And actually it says that he stood before God. That's what we call our, our silent prayers called the Amidah. He stood. This is from Abba. Moshe, we're told, took it one step further. But after the golden calf, God says to Moshe, please move out of my way and I will destroy the people. And I will make a new people from you. And then Moshe starts pleading for the people. So Rashi explains Moshe's logic here. Can you imagine God saying please to someone? Like he said, please move out of the way and I'll destroy the people and make a new people from you. But first of all, if you think about it, that's a pretty enticing proposition. Moshe could have said, okay. I think I'm pretty righteous. We'll start the Jewish people from me. Remember, these are the same people who just worshipped the golden calf. And he broke the tablets. But Rashi says that he understood in the language that God was saying, 
if you don't move out of the way, I won't be able to do it. Which is what God was hinting to him as a Jewish leader. I want you to plead for them. That's what I want you to do. But what did Moshe do? He said, God, if you do this, wipe me out of the book that you have written. In other words, wipe me out of the Torah. And the words that he uses, macheni na, literally erase. Please erase me. You look at this word, macheni, and you switch around the letters, it's me noach, the waters of noach. And we're told that when Moshe said that, he was able to fix that part of him, which was a reincarnation of Noah, because Noah didn't play for his generation. So this is the important. We, we learned that the, the three characteristics, in a sense, mark the Jew. What are they? Humbleness. Humbleness. Acts of kindness. And Rachmanut, uh, compassion. Those are the three defining characteristics. Now, this is so important that the first prayer in the Torah, Abram is pleading for the wicked. Now, this tells us something very, very, very important. I think I think it was Mark Twain who made the label that the Jews are the conscience of the world. And this is what Abram was doing. They weren't Jews. And they, they weren't righteous either. But Avram felt that it was his duty to stand up for them and plead for them. And this is something that has been handed down in our spiritual genes until this day. And that's why last week we mentioned in the last 200 years how many Jews have been critical personalities in different social movements that had to do with equality or social rights. Absolutely, absolutely incredible. And the other thing about Avram was that, if you remember the the, the case after his Brit Milah, so it says that, as it were, God came to visit the sick. And Avram was in an intimate can't even say conversation because we're not even told what was said, but Avram was having an intimate experience with God. And the Midrash said that's when he saw three strangers, and he says to God, excuse me, but I have to take care of these strangers. We learn from this that taking care of guests is even more important than receiving the face of the Shekhinah, of God's divine presence. This is an astounding thing. So the stories in the Torah, they're not there just to entertain us. They're to tell us who we come from. And especially from Abram, who had was given a mission or took upon himself a mission. That is the same mission we have until today. Is to, is to share, teach, and reveal to the world that there's one God. Our mission hasn't really changed since since Abraham and Sarah. And we're told that Sarah, she entertained all of the women, and Abraham entertained the men, and they had a tent open on four sides. This is leadership we see from the beginning. 
And then there's another part, because sometimes you think, Avram is chesed, Avram is chesed. But, when his nephew was uh, taken in war, Avram went to war to get him back. So, here we see that chesed has to be balanced also. That he could have said, well, tough luck, Lot, because I'm ish chesed, and like, I don't know how to do anything else. When he had to, he used Gabor. When he had to. And then when he returned, and he was offered to keep the booty, he refused it. Because that's not why he went to war. Until this day, people go to war for financial reasons. Oil, gold, power, land. Avram refused to take anything. Because his purpose was just to return the, the captives. And since we're saying that, we should see our captives returned. Shatuva also. Okay, so that's a little bit about Avram. Okay. Moshe. Now, Moshe is one of the greatest paradigms of, of Jewish leaders because the whole conversation at the burning bush. Again, it's not just stories to entertain us. These are eternal, archetypal teachings. And we see Moshe did not want to accept the mantle of leadership. And it was sincere. He really did not think he was capable. The Sonoma Rabbi says that's exactly why God wanted him. Because he had that natural humbleness. As the Torah later says, that Moshe was the most humble person on the face of the earth. He really didn't want to. He thought his brother was much better, more righteous, uh, had more skills, and he really, according to the explanations, it was a week's conversation. For a whole week he tried to refuse. And you'll see for a parsha or two, he's still a little bit shaky. Because God says, go into Paro. And he says, who am I to go into Paro? My lips are uncircumcised. But once Moshe, in a sense, moved into the role, he accepted it completely. And yet he kept his humbleness. Last week's parsha was Vayikra. And I don't know, maybe you learned on Shabbos that the word Vayikra is written with a little aleph. Why is there a little aleph here? Moshe like, didn't want anyone to know that God was calling him special. So he said, I'll just write Vayikar. And God said, but that's how I call Bilaam. He said, I'm not going to call you the way I call Bilaam. So they compromised and they wrote the Aleph small. So I, I read a beautiful parish from the, the original Rebbe. He said, what it's like, he said, it's, you have a little bird. And the little bird flies to the highest mountain. And he flies to the top of the mountain. He lands on the mountain. He's like on, he's on top of the world. Like he's like, like way up there. He said, but you know what? He's still a little bird on a big mountain. Now, he didn't all of a sudden become this huge bird. He said, that's like Moshe. Moshe went up to Mount Sinai. Went to like... We're told to, to the highest heavens. 
but in Moshe's own eyes, he was still a little bird. He was still a little bird who happened to merit to be on a, on a big mountain. Once he took on the mantle of leadership, he would even stand up to God, as we just saw, and said, you can't do this, and if you do it, I'll have no part of it. Wipe me out of your book. So this is also an important paradigm, is even though we may think that we're not on the level to make a difference, we don't have the skills, we don't have the uh, personality, whatever, but if leadership comes upon us, what Moshe is teaching us, and if you do it, you do it all the way, but you keep your humbleness. And that's why later Moshe, when Korah challenges Moshe, Moshe says to God, he said, I haven't taken even a shoestring from the people. That's not why I'm the leader. And you'll see this throughout Jewish history. Yehoshua didn't want to be the leader. If you know, if you remember the story of Gideon, he also like tried to squirm out of it the best that he could. Yonah, you know, jumps ship, right, to try to avoid being the prophet. When God first came to Isaiah, Isaiah also said, "I." I can't speak in your name. Like, who am I to speak in your name? Jeremiah, the same thing. Jeremiah, Jeremiah was 12 years old. And he went, someone else. We have this, this, this uh, pattern, which is very different from what you see in the world now. Unfortunately, what we're used to is putting two words together, leaders and politicians. And in most cases, I won't say in all cases, I won't say in all cases, but in most cases, it's, it's oxymoron. The quest for power is, is not the Jewish paradigm. The next case, we said we're going to talk about three people, Avram, Moshe, and Esther. So Esther, you have the same thing. Here she, you know, circumstances beyond her control. She's the queen. Yeah, 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 please. Okay, I don't know, in my mind, when I think of, like, humility, I think there's a difference between, like, knowing that you don't have certain skills and being humble. Because, like, being humble, I think, is opposite. You know you have the skills, but still you're not, you're not, like, flaunting them. Whereas not having skills is just being self-aware. I know I'm not a good speaker. I know I'm not a good writer. I know I'm uh, whatever. So, if, if you said that, like, Moshe knew that he wasn't a good speaker or he was incapable of doing this, does that, is that what makes him humble? Or knowing that he had those, but not flaunting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think both. Because if you remember the Midrash, he, he stuttered. Right. And that's when he said, I can't speak. It wasn't like humbleness of saying, I can't right. speak. He couldn't speak. Right. He stuttered. He, and he, he couldn't understand why God wants someone who stutters. Right to give over the word of God. We're actually told that it turned into an advantage because when he was he was speaking in God's name, he spoke perfectly. And everyone understood that it was coming through him. He was like, he was like, uh, it's hard to use this word because it's very new age, but he was like a channel. He, he, was, he was like a channel for God to come through. 
So I think it's both that he knew he didn't have certain skills, but that he also just had a natural humbleness. He just had a natural humbleness that, that he was always this little bird on a high mountain. Right? And that's a very hard thing to do. A very hard thing to be put on top of a mountain and not feel that you're now this huge bird. Right? It's, 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 it's very tempting. And you know the expression, power corrupts? Absolute power absolutely corrupts. It's kind of like you get to a position of power, and it's like if you don't have a moral code, if you don't have an ethical and moral code, the temptations are almost impossible to, at every level, sexually, money-wise, uh, arrogance, Bribery, like you know, whatever you, whatever you want to say, it's just the, the temptations are like incredible, incredible. And and, and unless you have a, a, a strong moral sense, you're you're slow. You can't be that little bird. It's almost it's very very difficult. So what what I wanted to say about Esther also is a paradigm. Since it's so recent, we know that Mordechai came to her and said, "You have to go and plead." For the Jews, and he's, I, I can't, I'm not called, I'm putting my life on the line, I really can't do anything. And he said to her, well, salvation will come from another place, you might be lost, and who knows if for this reason you weren't put in this position. So, Mordecai here was showing tremendous leadership in the following way, confidence. In other words, even when everything is falling apart, the leader can't fall apart. Do you remember with Moshe when, when Paro was, was chasing them and the sea was in front of them? And the people are like, whoa, what are we going to do? Let's go back to Egypt. And before Moshe even speaks to God, he says that God will save you. He didn't know that God was, I mean, he didn't talk to God. God didn't tell him. But, in other words, his role was to be stronger. If you've ever been in a situation like one of your friends is going through something really hard, or someone's sick or whatever, and you're visiting them, and it really hurts you to, to see them like this, but right now, you have to be the strong one, right? Even if you've ever been near, near people who are passing away or dying, and, like, you know that you can't, you can't really show that. You, you have to sh show a certain amount of strength to give them strength. So here we see it in Moshe. But Esther, this was a decision of a lifetime of hers. And what she did, though, was very, very interesting. She said, go and gather all the Jews and have them fast and pray for me. And I will fast and pray, too. And after three days, I will go into the king. And everyone knows, in Avadati, Avadati. If I'm lost, I'm lost. But what's interesting here is, how did she go about exerting her leadership? By getting all the people together. We're told in Hasidu, this is like the turning point of the story. When she said, because everyone had heard about the decree, 
Mordechai himself had put on sackcloth and ashes and was mourning. And she said, get all the people together. Like, we need to come together now. So this is another very important paradigm of Jewish leadership, of bringing people together. And when we're talking about student tikkun olam, and especially the reality of you're going back to campus, along with everything, everything we're saying today applies to to you and what could be done on campus. But this might be the most important one. To try to get people to come together. That's where things start moving, right? That's where the story changed. So those are the three paradigms that I wanted to bring. Like I said, there are many, many more Jewish leaders, many more examples. But she herself, again, is another example. She didn't ask for the leadership. When Mordechai said, you know, we're depending on you, she also was like, I can't do it. But again, once she decided to do it, then she went the whole way. And I want to point out one other thing about Esther, which is very, very important. She was able to pull off what she did because she was clever. The king says to her, it's obvious that he had a soft spot for her. And he says to her, up to half of my kingdom, whatever you ask for, up to half of my kingdom. So everyone asks, why didn't you just ask right then? Please save the Jews. And you know what did she say? Come to a, come to a feast with Haman. Come to a feast. Everyone asks, like, why did she do that? That was a big risk she took. And the next day, right, the king says also, up to half of my kingdom, what do you want? So you say, ah, now she's going to do it. No, nope. the king and Haman come tomorrow to another feast. So, the Midrash was saying between the lines, so she was making Ahasuerus jealous. She wanted him to think that maybe she was interested in Haman. So she was waiting. This is the point. She was waiting for the right time. She, was, she just goes into the first time. I'll ask. I don't know what kind of mood he's in. Right? She said, it's not the right time. In other words, what's the expression? It's all in the timing. She wasn't sure if the timing was right. So it says that she, those two feasts, she was building up his anxiety. And we're told, the beginning of the sixth chapter, when it says, and the sleep of the king was disturbed. Remember, and he wakes up and he says, bring me the, the, the chronicles, I can't sleep. And then he reads about Mordechai. What have we done for Mordechai? The midge says, why did he wake up? He was jealous. He was having a dream that, that Esther was interested in Haman. So then when she, she waited and she waited, and when she saw that the time was right, then she asked. Then she asked. The point is, she like, she, she, she didn't just jump at the first thing. She used her, her brains, right? So sometimes also, sometimes when we want to accomplish something, 
We want to make a difference. We come back from Israel and we're all inspired and we're all, right? And like, you know, like the first thing that comes along, we throw ourselves into, right? And then it doesn't turn out so good and then we throw up our hands and like, I tried. So it, it's teaching us. It's teaching us like, you have to know the right time. You have to know how to time things. You know what that's called in an event? What's called creating a moment. I don't know if, if you've ever run events before, a whole Shabbaton, a week seminar, whatever. Sometimes there's a tendency you want to hit the high point. Like you have this like, like great song or great Torah or great speaker, whatever. And you just you want to put them on first, right? But if you learn anything about how to run events, is you have you have to wait to create a moment. You can't just like like push it. You have to wait until energy goes. That's what I'm trying to give over is the the depths and the lineage that we have in leadership and hustle. That it that the more we understand where it's coming from, why do Jews and I you know, some people might say this is not politically correct to say this, but it's a reality. And it 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 creates a lot of anti Semitism. But you look at countries around the world, it could be Uruguay, it could be South Africa, it could be Russia, it could be England, Australia, America, whatever, is Jews rise to the top. Now, some people could say, well, you know, you can't say such a thing, but it's true. Whether it's in, in the sciences, in literature, in medicine, in music, in economics, in politics, in law, what else would it be Art, whatever it is, it's just, we, we mentioned last week that Jews make up less than 2% of the American population and they give 20% of the charity. The, sec- the other thing in 20%, which is astounding, but 20% of, uh, of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish. Unbelievable. And, th- and there in the world, we're far less than 1%. We're one-tenth of 1%. But the idea is, where is it coming from? And the same thing we said in social movements and chassid. How many Jews are involved in social movements and investment? It's it's incredibly high percentages. So we want that's what we've been doing the last two weeks is looking at the Torah, looking at the prophets, looking at the writings, and now we're going to be looking a lot in the oral tradition as for chesed. And we'll read one paragraph at a time, and. Each time we'll do a few of the pages. In the end, um, all of you will take this with you, hopefully, and be able to use it. This small booklet lists some of the many Jewish sources relating to the idea of brotherly love expressed through communal chesedim, or chesed, acts of loving kindness considered in Jewish thought to be a veritable pillar of supporting the universe. Your participation in this noble endeavor through Hebrew youth offers a student program is a medium through which you can fulfill the Jewish ideal of giving of yourselves to others. 
while identifying in a very real necessary way with Israel and its people during your time. In truth, there are volumes of source material relating to the subject of charity, assisting the less fortunate, and deeds of loving kindness which could be presented. We hope that the material provided here will give you an idea of how deeply ingrained these notions are in Jewish tradition. The sources are gleaned from the Torah of the Talmud, the Midrash, the Hasidic thought, and Jewish ethical institutions, a tradition spanning more than 4,000 years. More than just a set of suggestions, radical human behavior, each of Hasid and Judaism, are raised to the level of Mitzvah, commandment, and therefore from the basic legal and moral framework in which a just and righteous Jewish society operates. Due to the importance the Jewish community has always placed in the idea of communal responsibility, we have managed, through developing these ideas into practical institutions and ethics, to deserve a history of severe oppression and trauma. The phase which best embodies this ongoing model is, quote, all of Israel's responsible when the current year is. Chesed is not limited to merely giving financially to those less fortunate, but entails contributing one's time, effort, emotional, and intellectual strength and talents to a hosty situation. Among the many are visiting the sick, comforting the mourner, hospitality to guests, assisting the stranger, providing interest-free loans, assisting the handicapped and the elderly, ransoming captives, supporting the poor and those without other supports. The mitzvah of chesed applies to all of Israel, and in the spirit of peace, to all mankind. The basic principles of chesed extend to animals as well, and in fact to our entire ecostructure. We hope you will be inspired by your rich, <coughs> by your experience in helping others. And will be motivated to learn more about the rich Jewish tradition relating to making the world a better, more caring place to live. Okay. So let's just look at a few of these um, sources. <coughs> Our rabbis taught giving with chesed, loving kindness, is greater than charity in three ways. Charity is done with one's money, while loving kindness may be done with one's money or with one's person, like spending time with a sick person. Charity is given only to the poor, while loving kindness may be given to both the poor and to the rich, like consoling one who is in mourning or depressed. Charity is given only to the living, while loving kindness may be shown to both the living and the dead, by arranging a proper burial for a person who died indigent. I'll just tell you a story. This is very, this is interesting. Um, any of you were involved in NCSY? Yeah? So you'll, you'll appreciate the story. I was NCSY regional director in Denver for seven years. And my father passed away in Las Vegas two days before Yom Kippur. And we had to bring his body to Cleveland to bury him. And the burial was Arab Yom Kippur. And I, had, and I was supposed to be back in Denver for Yom Kippur. So everything was happening like like super fast. Things were not super organized. I made calls. I was told that you know everything was being taken care of. There would be a minion at the, at the cemetery. I flew in. We went literally from the airport to the um, to the uh, cemetery. <coughs> so we get there, and there's no minion. This was after like like three days of like this kind of crazy. And I'm standing there and my father is like and there's no minion. And that was like that was too much for me. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't know the rabbi. I really didn't know the community. I, I didn't know what to do. I'm just standing there. I can't even say Kaddish. 
all of a sudden, a car pulls up, and, and a, uh, a young college kid gets out with like five um, teenage boys. They come over, and they make the minion. And so, okay, we did it. I could say Kaddish, the whole thing. Afterwards, I asked, where did you come from? Where, where did you come from? They said, um, we're, we're an NCSY. And I, to this day, I'm not even sure how it happened. I don't know how it happened, but someone made a call to the, to the, um, the Madrich and said, there's someone from out of town who needs a minion. They didn't know me. They didn't even know I, I was involved with NCSY. And, and, and the cemetery was far away. It was Erev Yom Kippur. And they drove all the ways out there, and they made the minion. So I felt like, wow, this is like, <laughs> right? Some kind of Mita connected Mita, I guess, for, you know, NCSY doing NCSY in Denver, and hopefully doing a lot of mitzvahs, because when I, right when I needed it, it was there. But it was amazing, because they didn't know me. And like I said, they weren't doing because I was in an NCSY. They just heard that someone had to have a minion. They dropped everything. Every Kipper, there's a lot to do. Dropped everything and they came. So that's this last one. The charity is given only to the living. That's what reminded me of it. While loving kindness may be shown to both the living and the dead. By arranging a proper burial for a person who died in this one. Right? It's an amazing story. Okay. Who who is reading? I was reading. Okay. As Maimonides makes clear, neediness is not always synonymous with poverty. It can refer also to those who are emotionally or psychologically destitute. Thus, even the widow and orphans of a of a king may be vulnerable and in need of emotional support. But all who are hungry come and eat, and that all who are needy come and make. Right, that's five days from now or something we will be we'll be saying that, right? And so the but the big question is when we open the door, right, and we say this, are we going to the motions or do we really mean it? I won't tell the story now, but I it because it takes so long. I have the most classic story that one time Long story, but one time we went to the door, we said this, and we sat down, and one minute later there was a knock at the door, and it's a long, it's a, it's a classic start, and there was someone who asked, said, I, I, have, I have no place to say to could I join yours? This was, yes. So after that, when I say this, it's, like, <laughs> it's not the same. It's not like you're saying because you always go. To, you don't expect anyone to be there, right? But what it what it what it's saying is telling us again something very deep in our tradition. Like, are we ready to just take someone up? Okay, let's just finish this page. You shall not pray to someone without in front of the You shall fear God. In addition to that, meeting, not playing crochets or through the coupon. The rabbis proudly interpreted this verse as forbidding taking advantage of anyone who is blind in the matter. In the matter, anyone who takes advantage of another's ignorance and gives him or 
her inappropriate advice is considered to have violated this biblical law. The rabbinic commentary on Leviticus teaches. If a man seeks her advice, do not give him counsel that is wrong for him. Do not say to him, leave early in the morning, so that thugs might mug him. Do not say to him, leave at noon, so that he may pay for meat. Do not say to him, sell your field and buy a donkey, so that you may circumvent him and then take the field away from him. Okay, so here's a great example of what seems like a very narrow mitzvah. Don't put a stumbling place uh, black before the blind. And the rabbis from the oral tradition broadened it, right? They broadened it incredibly. Another example of this is right, but just like Tubishvat, where it says if you lay siege to a field, uh, a city, you can't cut the fruit trees to make battering ramps because what did the fruit trees do to you? Right? So this also seems like anyone planning on laying siege to a city in the next few days? I mean, it's like a mitzvah. You think like it has no application. The rabbis took this and they they created the the category called Baal Tashchit. What does Baal Tashchit mean? Yeah. In other words, it's not, we're not just talking about fruit trees. We're being told we can't waste anything. And from that, we have, uh, as far as I'm concerned, if I remember an email I sent out not long ago on Tubishrat about global warming, is that includes guarding our entire ecostructure. Yep. From, that, from that mitzvah, we have a, a Torah imperative not to lay waste to, to our own earth. We have to take care of it. The way that this is put into practice is, I don't know if you know, but the Dalai Lama in the last few years has met with different Jewish leaders asking them, how did you survive the exile? Now, he's in the same situation. He's been in exile for 40 years. China has taken over Tibet, but he still hopes to go back and preserve his his religion. And he, in in tremendous seriousness, he he wanted to know how were you able to survive as a culture, as a people, for two thousand years intact and go back to your land. He's struggling to do it for one generation. And one of the things is if. And you can check out it wherever you live. If you look into the, the history of your local Jewish community, one of the most amazing things, and if you go to the Diaspora Museum in Tel Aviv, you'll see it. What, ha- what has happened is when Jews came to a city in America, within like five years, you had an entire social structure set up. It's absolutely amazing. Within five years, you would have a soup kitchen. You would have a um, a fund for for brides. You'd have the mikvah committee. You'd build the Beit Knesset. You would have, right now, funds are distributed for people who need money for Pesach. Called Kimcha Piska. Uh, Pesach flour. Uh, 
you have an entire structure. The structure today is called the, the federation structure. The federation structure is basically they just took all caring for the elderly. When, when the Russian immigrants came in, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, there were, you know, every synagogue had uh, furniture drives and families to pair with them. But the amazing thing is it's done within like a few years. You have an entire social structure that no one felt fell through the, the cracks. And that's how every Jewish community made it. They came to a place and immediately the, the operative reality was we have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves. And like I said, that's how we get the Federation today. Um, with all these different branches caring for all these different different elements.